welcome to Season 3 of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, where we share inspiring stories with artists and art professionals on a wide range of topics about life and work. We share ideas on our inspirations and the influences that affect our lives. I sit down with artists and thought leaders across the diaspora to learn more about the things that make them tick, the ideas that they are passionate about, and the ways in which their work seeks to impact our society in a variety of ways. Join us as we continue the journey of sharing the interesting and inspiring stories of some of today's most dynamic artists and art professionals in the industry. Let's go! this episode, I'm joined by Jeffrey Maris, the New York-based artist whose paintings, sculptures, and conceptual work draw on his lived experiences. Maris was recently announced as one of this year's winners of the prestigious and highly coveted Studio Museum of Harlem residency, which has seen the likes of heavy hitters such as Shakaya Booker, David Hammonds, Carrie James Marshall, Julie Maratou, Megaline Thomas, and Kehinde Wiley take part in its program. When he shared the news with me, months before the announcement, I couldn't have been more happy or proud. I love that his sculptures literally stop me in my tracks, implore me to consider his life and experiences as a Black man moving through the world and living and working in America. His use of material and the layer upon layer of symbolism and meaning in his work provide such a richness and fullness that I am often overwhelmed with an indescribable feeling when viewing his works. There is a seriousness, yet softness, a compassion in his kinetic works featuring casted molds of his body. Other works explore the natural world and his local environment through dynamic plant-like structures. Formally, Jeffrey Maris is an artist who works across sculpture, installation, performance, and drawing to consider ecology, embodiment, and various lived experiences while healing deeply personal and historical wounds. Listen in as we dive into this latest episode with Jeffrey Maris. Let's go! Jeffrey Maris, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to chat and get to share a bit more about my practice and my life. Yes, that sounds wonderful. I think the biggest thing that I really want to start with and talk about right now is you being in the Studio Museum Residency Program, which is such a big deal. And, you know, we had kind of spoken privately off the record and you shared it with me before it was made public. And of course I didn't share that with anyone, but once it was made public, I was so, so excited and just really felt so proud of the work that you've done and knowing you in such a short amount of time, but feeling very connected every time we speak, always having great energy, always feeling like there's a good vibe between us. So I was so happy to see that, to see that for you. Such a, such a proud moment. So can you tell me a little bit about the process of like applying to the Studio Museum residency and what you went through to sort of, you know, get in? I'm, of course, always so honored to be in community and communion with you. I think that the Studio Museum was definitely, it's, it's definitely like this momentous career, like moment where I think that was the aha moment in my life where it's like, oh shit, this thing is actually working out. You know, because as creative workers, we're constantly filled with doubt and so many question marks. And re- regardless of how how well or how many things you've accomplished, it's, it's always this constant need to sort of fill this, this, this void in, in a ways, right? It's almost like the minute you accomplish something, that sort of becomes obsolete and you go looking for the next thing. But 
this, I think, specifically the studio museum felt like, okay, I'm not, you know, to quote TLC, I'm not chasing waterfalls anymore. It feels real. And I, I remember my first time encountering the studio museum about 12 years ago. I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I came to New York for the first time, and one of the trips that, that I ended up going on was going to see the studio and I went, this is when they, they were location at the 144 West 125th Street, and I went there, and they had this really incredible show on, I can't remember what the artist was, but encountering that show, and then finding out about the Artists in Residence program, and Terry Aitkins and David Hammonds and Kahindi and Mukeshi and all, all of these people just seeing how they came out that program and coincidentally a lot of those folks would become people who I would look up to in my own practice. It became very evident to me that this I need to become a part of this legacy or be in conversation with this institution somehow. And I applied for the first time in 2019, right after graduating. And I got the big fat no. <laughs> Not the nice no where they say your name, but the no where it's like, they're applicant, right? And at the time, I was kind of crushed about it. But that's a part of this game, right? You, you have to learn not every opportunity is going to be for you. And sometimes it takes a couple of times. Like I have colleagues who've applied to opportunities upward to eight times before they've gotten it. Right. First time was a no. And I had to live with that for a second. And I also think looking back now, three years ago, I wasn't where I am now. I didn't understand what I was doing in my practice as I do now. And earlier in the spring, when I decided to apply, I had this, I had this, almost like this gut feeling that told me, Jeffrey, your time is now. Mm-hmm. It told me now or never, mm-hmm. right? And I really, truly felt like that mm-hmm. because I... I was about to open my very first commercial gallery show, right? And that's sort of a big deal when you're a young artist or an emerging artist because then that puts you in a different space, right? Your work is now becoming economically viable. An idea behind residencies like Studio Museum is it's meant for very early career, early emerging artists. And as I started to sort of think about my CV, all these opportunities that were starting to pile up, I think could give the optic that maybe... I was a little, I was starting to get beyond that point of being beyond that opportunity. Mm. And so to me, it just felt as if I had all these indicators. I was saying, Jeffrey, it's now, like the time is now. That being said, I really wanted to, <laughs> I'm going to just say this out there. I really wanted to, you know, experience the new building. But yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that, that won't happen right now. We're at the satellite location at 49 West 127th Street. And okay. that's okay because I still get to enjoy everything that the institution has to offer. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talked about, you know, your first institutional gallery show and sort of the way that that kind of, it's a, it's a really big step up in an artist and in an emerging artist's career. Can you talk about that show? Was that the one at Matthew Brown? Yes, yeah, so this is my first commercial show at Matthew Brown Gallery in Los Angeles. And it, is, it was about a show that I've been working on for more, that specific show about a year, that body of work, I would say about the last two years. And the work, and, and I think the interesting about making work the way that I do is I tend to things happen in series. So that work I'm still sort of 
thinking about it, but more, I'm taking it outside of the language of painting and more into the language of sculpture. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I yet. I'm thinking a lot about uh, Lee Montague, who's an artist that I admire quite a lot. Unfortunately, she just passed. My friend Patricia has also influenced the work a lot too. But essentially, that work I started making about last year, August. Last year, August. And the, the premise of the show was that two years ago, I was making these kinetic sculptures that were very sort of jarring. They optically, they looked like these torture devices. And the idea is that these plastic casts were mounted onto these perforated sheet metal structures. And each cast was connected to an AC electric motor. And so the motor forced the plastic cast to grind across perforated sheet metal. So it's almost like a cheese grater. You can imagine that visually. That's what the sculptures looked like. Mm. And that work began about two to three years ago. Had a very long narrative around coming to realization, and and the body of work is called "Now You See Me, Now You Don't." Mm-hmm. Where they each have their meta narratives and meta titles. And around the start of the pandemic, you know, everyone's baking bread, everyone's adopting pets, everyone's taking care of plants. I became one of those people, and I realized that the work that I needed to do was inside of myself and inside of my practice and sure it was nice to have these conversations around race and architecture and the body right and the long history of colonialism and anti-blackness globally right but i think it's also important while we have that discussion to think about what would generative regenerative restorative practice look like that poses a black future or future that has blackness right and so I think that's, that became a very important shift in the work where I started thinking about these issues. And so in a lot of ways, the work started to mirror that. I started using softer materials, things that required a sense of care and nurturing, mm. right? The same way that I'm thinking about nerd, like having this holistic way of living. Mm. So my practice reflect that. Mm. And the way that that manifested visually inside the work was like, Quite literally, those sculptures that I described earlier with the cheese grater structures, those were made out of steel. Plaster has liquid in it. And so the liquid was, and steel and water don't really interact very well, neither is option. So what ended up happening is these sculptures quite literally rusted while I had them in storage. And I had to make this decision of whether or not I would keep them. Over the course of the first seven months of 2020, I essentially was cleaning steel off of rust because I was trying to save my sculptures. But what really was happening was my practice was that chaos started to come back in. And so I was using old t-shirts and acetic acid to pull the rust off of steel. And essentially I started collaging these pieces together, which would eventually become the paintings. And in 2021, one of the skills I picked up was sewing. So these steel to steel snaps disappeared and the fabric started to become stitched together mm. to these painterly looking works. And most recently what happened to the works is that I've been working with copper. So when rust oxidizes, it produces a brown, we all know what rust looks like, right? But when copper 
oxidizes and produces a patina. Mm-hmm. And that think Statue of Liberty, right? Yep. She's a tonic green, bluish tint. So I've been working with similar metals in my studio and forcing them to oxidize. And that's how I'm ending up with these blue, sort of tropical, aquatic paintings. It's very turquoise in color. Beautiful. I'm really interested in sort of how you got to the practice that you have today, the use of material, the making sculptures. It's, it feels very multidisciplinary. And I'm, as I recall, as you're, as you, we've been chatting over the last few minutes, I recall where I first saw your work, which was in a show called Voices, curated by Anwari Musa. I believe that was in 2020, or maybe 2021. 2020. 2020. And that piece, I believe, is called The Block is Hot. And, yeah. Right, there's a, a plaster sort of torso and chest. And you have your same kinetic elements where there's moving parts and the plaster is being deteriorated away on this sort of perforated metal, right? And that was the first time I had ever seen your work. But I think I was instantly and immediately inquisitive about how you, how, like, who you were, obviously, but also how you came to be, make work in this particular way. I, I love that question. Question <laughs> 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 because, like, I feel like I give the really quick, like, material visual synopsis without, with, without getting to the cultural sort of narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I so the block of thought is one of the sculptures that fit into the now you see now you don't series, mm-hmm. and I, I think the long of it is that I. I'm originally from the Bahamas, and I moved here to do my MFA. I did my MFA at Columbia University, and I lived in Harlem years, and also Harlem is dope, so why not? And so I, one night I was taking the A train from Harlem 125th Street, and there's this really iconic clip. <laughs> I think about this, this, this lives rent free in my mind. There's this clip. Hillary Clinton, bless her soul, trying to take the subway, and she has a metro card, and you know she just is failing profusely at it. And so this is about my first year living in Harlem, and I rarely took the subway because I could walk to my studio, and I had five dollars on my MTA card, and I just kept swiping it incorrectly, and eventually the machines had insufficient funds, and I knew that I had five dollars on my card, and a subway ride cost two dollars and seventy-five cents, so I jumped and turned out. And shortly thereafter, as I was boarding the train, these two pups came after me and stopped me, bought a ticket. And on the ticket, my height was recorded six foot seven and my weight was 250 pounds. Now, you all might not be able to see me, but I weigh 180 pounds and I am six foot two, right? And I think 2018, when you take this in context of the way that acts of violence against black people police brutality was at an all-time high, right? And now we were seeing all these images constantly on the news and constantly on the TV. And the way that Mike Brown was described as a Hulk, right? So when you think about it contextually, you know, the only way that I could think is we really had to escalate this so quickly Right, you really had to project onto my body in such a violent way over something so minuscule, right? 
you literally could have gone up to the ticket agent and just swiped my card. Anyway, that's another story. And I'm a Capricorn, so I'm all about logic and reason, rationale. And so I ended up going to court for this $100 ticket. And in court, I had this epiphany moment where I realized, like, damn, why does everyone in this room sort of look like, I don't know these people, but they all, there's something fishy going on here, right? And so that really got me thinking about these systems of visibility or invisibility, if you want. Like, what, what's, what's the architecture that makes it possible that this exists in this way? And simultaneously being at Columbia and our critical theory class, avant-garde theory class, right, realizing how much time we spent on Western canonical writers, right? But then maybe the last three, four weeks, you have to read everything that's pertinent to race, gender, sexuality, class, right? But then you spent almost two months on Walter Benjamin in the archive. So that's really where the work is coming from, really thinking about how... Can, can you say that last part again? You spent two months on what? Walter Benjamin, mm-hmm. right? He's this writer that writes on the archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very, one of the works that he's very popular for is the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. And so, so a lot of art programs lecture and teach on his work profusely. And that's not to say that his work isn't important, right? But that's the same way that you go to a museum, right? And there's entire rooms dedicated to Picasso. <laughs> Right, but the entire history of Africa has to be explained in, you know, in two paragraphs. Like, exactly, half the size of a room that Picasso gets. And Picasso's work is directly influenced by African exactly. art. No, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so thinking about all of these ideas is really how I got to the work. And one of the things that I, the way that I think about that body of work, now you see me, now you don't, I think about now as surrogates and not as myself. Like these things, these these, contri- these contain racially charged violence, right? And so in some ways that, although that, that movement, that, that destruction, that up and downness, even though that's, it's, it's a violent gesture, I think there's something liberatory inside of it. I guess that I'm being liberated from the violence of the white gaze. Yeah, I, I I think that's so so powerful and personal stories are always so powerful. They they ring so true, right? When you have a human experience and you share that with someone, whether that's about race or gender or life in general. And I was just thinking, you know, as you were speaking about the idea that, you know, you're originally from the Bahamas but lived and grew up in Haiti, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, now you live in the U.S. and you're an artist and you're working on applying for a green card and you've got your studio residency and, you you know, you're working as an artist day to day. But the thing that I think is so interesting is when you come here as a person of color who reads as black, I mean, yes, who reads as black, you instantly become black in America. Whereas I think you could go to literally any other place in the world and say you were Haitian or Bahamian, and you would be seen as such. I could be wrong. That could be a big assumption on my part. But I do think the phenomena of coming to the U.S. as a person of color, as a black person or a person who clearly looks like they come from Africa and then being labeled as simply black is such a 
it's such an interesting thing. And I think what you just described about the subway is the way that our justice system criminalizes black and brown people for minor, minor infractions. And I, I'm assuming that this is the first time in your in your adult life, in your life, that you're confronted with a real life situation wherein you see how how your body and your skin color is treated with such incredible violence. Well, you know, I think the, the thing is that it's nearly impossible to be naive about these things, even not coming from America, right? Mm-hmm. Because America, I think America's cultural production is so expansive that you know it exists, you know, even when you don't live in America. But there is something really jarring about the first-handness of it, right? And I do agree with you that I do feel this sense of, like, damn, I'm really black. <laughs> For real. Like, when you... Because in the Bahamas, we have a 90% black population, right? So I I never really... It's not something that I had to contend with, right? Because we held a political and cultural majority, and so, you know... I think the, the the cultural discussion around minority and majority is much different, right? It's more based around immigration and less around race. And that's not to say that white European Anglo-Saxon people don't exist in the Bahamas, they do. But, you know, the pressure is a little bit less. But coming to America, you really feel like you come into the space of blackness, whatever that means, right? right. Because it's also such an expansive phenomenon yeah but but you do feel like hell yeah yeah yeah. you know it's it's very interesting because on my side I'm half Nigerian and half African-American and so for me it's like there's all of the culture there's all of the pride of knowing directly where my family comes from in Africa and having a very direct sense of my place and my culture and my history in the world and like you know Nigerian people just have a tendency to be very well known right well known throughout the world <clears throat> as far as how African people are for, like perceived more broadly in my opinion and so I think growing up as a young girl I always had a sense of of belonging like even if I was in a situation where I might be the only person of color or in a situation where, where I might be the only girl I always have felt very comfortable in the fact that I know where I come from. And I think one of the things that's very difficult about being strictly African-American, if if you don't have any connection, direct connection to Africa or the Caribbean or even parts of Europe by way of Africa, you might have a sense that your story is only what has been told to you through the American cultural production that you've spoken about, the media, the movies, the music, the the visual culture that's so ingrained in the society. And so I think one of the things I'm really curious about is, and this is sort of veering off, but like, as you think about your practice from a holistical sort of 360 perspective, do you think that you that you are the kind of artist that will always focus on work that is about your personal experience, that is about race, that is about class, that is about these kinds of issues? That's, I think that's, that's interesting. I think that's definitely interesting, but I, 
I think that this might sound like a cop out of it, but I think where I'm starting to where I'm starting to think about things is like the work is more about culture. Yeah, there's elements of racism, but I think more broadly it's about culture. It's it's about these things that inform my reality and the way that I see myself in the world, and sometimes the way that I participate or I'm an audience member in the world. I think if I had to put it that way, that's all the way that I see it. And and I definitely think there's this very personal narrative to, 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 I think although the work is very personal, I also feel as though it's communal in a sense too. Mm, I love because, that. Because these, this, this story or this, this narrative isn't singular. And that might also be because of where I'm from and where I grew up, right? We have a tendency, my teachers always told me this when I was a kid, or even when I went off to school, they'd always be like, you're representing all of us, you know? Like, whenever you're from the Caribbean or a small place, like, you don't have the autonomy to just be you, you know? You're, <laughs> you're speaking with. And you're speaking for. For, you know? Do you, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you agree? I mean, what a, what a, what a weight to put on somebody. What like, I know, it's, I know yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm just, no. I'm just me. And I'm trying to like, you know, do the best I can. Yeah, like, diplomacy, always, right? Oh, you're from the Bahamas? I know someone from the Bahamas. Oh, yes, my relationship to the Bahamas. Tell me what you think. And I'm like, bro, <laughs> I'm literally just trying to get a drink. But that's the law. I, I, I think that that's, that's one of the, the, the fun, exciting things about about this, right? And I think it's because for so long, people that are from these kinds of places haven't had a chance to really have their narrative told in a global lens, right? It's always regional. You yeah. always make their perspective seem like small island issues. But yeah. no, we're a part of the world, too. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that this has been like such a beautiful episode and such a beautiful conversation. And I kind of want to bring it back to the beginning before we wrap up and just ask you a little bit about what you have on the horizon for the future. You know, like I know you've got the residency, but it's like, when do you start? And like, what is that process going to look like? Or what are you super excited about, you know, over the next couple of months? Yes. So the residency started about a month ago. I... I'm currently in the studio and figuring things out. I next year is a bit on the quiet side for me because I wanted to be really intentional about my time at the residency and really learning my practice and like, tightening things. Mm. But I do have I have a few institutional projects. One at the Amon Carter Museum that opens February twelfth. Sorry, not the Amon Carter, the Aldrich, the Aldrich Contemporary in Connecticut. Beautiful. Primo material curated by Richard Allen. And then March 12th is the Eamon Carter Museum, the Emancipation Project, curated by Maggie Adlo. Is that a group so, show? Yes. Well, it's a group solo, one of those like five person museum shows. Okay, so beautiful. It's like a solo project presentation okay. along with Eve Hayden and Sadie Barnett and Sable Lee Smith. Oh, nice. What artists? In good company. 
Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really excited about that show. Later in March, it'll be Studio Museum in Harlem, Artists in Residence, Open Studios. So save the date for that. Yes, no ab- that. absolutely. Save the, save the temperature of late March. And finally, super open summer. Again, I guess, like, you know, commercial projects until after next year, November, moment PS1, end of year residency exhibition for the Studio Museum Artists and Residence, along with Devin Morris and Sharice Whipson. Amazing. Amazing. It sounds like you have an incredible year ahead of you. So much new newness, as the kids say, on the horizon. And I'm just very excited for you. Super excited to see how, how things continue to develop. Thank you. And... <laughs> yes. So it was really a pleasure to speak with you. And I look forward to continuing to watch your career blossom and grow. Thank you. That was my episode with Jeffrey Maris. I want to give a big shout out and a big thank you to Jeffrey for joining me on the show. And it's a wrap, folks. That was our episode of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, conversations on culture and current events with some of today's hottest creative contemporaries. These episodes were recorded between New York, Miami, and Ghana over the past six months and reflect the times we are living in while also adding some commentary to the social, cultural, and political issues of our world at large. Depending on where I am in the world at the time of our recordings, you will hear the sounds of our local environments throughout the U.S. and in West Africa. I'm your host, Fulashade Olobindudu, and we'll see you next time. As always, stay motivated, stay inspired, and stay up. Peace and love, y'all. We out.